Well, good morning. Hello, hello. Look at you arriving here on time after springing ahead. Congratulations. You too online. Way to go. Uh, you know, if you're in the house today, uh, so today is March 14th. Can anybody tell me what is significant about 314? It's Pi Day. And so to make it a little fun for those of us here in the house, we have pie for you after church, little mini, little mini pies. Thanks, Vanessa Hall, for making that happen. Trying to bring the fun. Does the fun feel like it's been brought? Yes, good job. So cool beans. Um, so I wanted to acknowledge today is one year since we shut down. A year ago today was our first Sunday of live streaming, and that was with Steph's iPhone on a tripod and uh, a TV, and uh, at the time, we only let me and Steph and Jack and Art and Pam and Julia in the room. Zach was maybe there the first time, and uh, I sent you an email on uh, Thursday the 12th and said that we would be shutting down for two Sundays. We would not worship together for, it was 14 consecutive Sundays before we gathered together again. And I've been really thinking about this year. I've been thinking about um, the challenges it's presented. But uh, when we first started doing online, I remember I really felt like the Lord kind of gave me a word, which was um, that there are going to be people who uh, will be unrecognizable on the other side of this because of the way they use this season to press in into the Lord. And I have just seen that um, in the depth of the rootedness in our community and in um, just the way that you have grown and pressed in. And so I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for joining us online. A year ago, we literally couldn't do that, uh, which is wild to think about. And it's fitting that today, a year in, we have all sorts of technological challenges. You'll notice the band is a little skinnier. We've got people not feeling well and a whole bunch of stuff like that. And so if you're watching online this morning, uh, the words won't be on the bottom of the screen. They're going to be on this TV. Thanks for being patient with us while we cobble gatherings together again in this season. And all the more reason for you to fill out that little here I am to help with the new gatherings that we're starting in, uh, after Easter here, right? So that'll be filled out. But when we, um, when we moved, off, uh, moved out of one-person gatherings, we were online, we were praying together, I encouraged us to pray Psalm 91 every day. And so I was going to read that today as we start worship. So could I invite you to stand? And I'll read Psalm 91. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God in whom I trust. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from the deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers and shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, those evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. 
the Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. Father, um, a year ago, we did not know what lay ahead. A year ago, a lot of us were wondering if we would be able to find the food we were looking at at Walmart. A year ago, we were wiping our groceries with Clorox wipes. A year ago, we were, there was so much fear. A year ago, uh, a year ago, though, Lord, over this last 365 days, you've drawn near to us. And I'm, I'm so thankful that while about a third of our church has gotten COVID in this season, I, I have not done a funeral for anyone that we know well. Um, Lord, I thank you that your hand has been on us, even as we've chosen to gather in person. And so, Lord God, I pray that you um, would be honored today. I pray that we would remember. I pray that the things that you have invested in us in the last 365 days would bear fruit that lasts. And we give you thanks for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together. We sang that line, um, no power in hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. I just want to invite you to sit in that this morning. For I am convinced that neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor powers nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, no one can take from me. And so, Lord, help us to stand secure in your possession of us today. And whether it was something that happened to us this week or something we have done this week, help us stand firm in that uh, you command our destiny and you hold a firm grip on us. And so out of that firm grip, we just offer you all we are today. So pray that you would come and move among us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. And uh, if you want to Google it, Google it. Isaiah 58. Um, just kind of two things. You know, so first of all, oh, sorry, Elaine. Good job. Okay. Um, this is kind of a weird thing to say when we're trying to also expand our teams, but if you could just be praying for our staff, if you could be praying for our teams, it just feels like um, whether it's like health stuff or family stuff or financial stuff or just discouragement, there just seems to be a lot of that on our teams. And so if you could just be praying for like the Lord's protection and his guidance, again, that's the exact same kind of thing you want to hear when I say, come join our team, because it's like saying, join the team, and you too can come under spiritual attack. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it, we do need you, and, uh, and it, we really do sense that we um, are just being postured for a move of God uh, in the months to come. And I really sense that this fall, you may have heard me say that we're going to begin a sustained, a sustained outward push for... I'm planning on two or three years. We do up and in out as a church. We're going to really turn that triangle on its side, make out the sharp end of the spear, the first bite of pizza. And so I want to just invite you to be praying into that with us because I really sense that we're on the cusp of a really significant move of God. Um, and uh, I think that outward movement does really start with us coming alongside our brothers and sisters who attend the 930 service. And so um, 
as you come to that, kind of come with that heart and mind. Uh, heart and mind, that's a phrase now. And uh, the other thing I thought I would just share, if, if you're new to our church, you have no idea why Cuba is important. So whether you're watching online or here, but um, in January of 2020, uh, I was forced to take an international trip. I was going to seminary at the time. I was going to have to leave my wife and not quite one year old for like, I don't know, 14,000 days. It, felt, it was about 14 days. And I was going to go to Cuba and I was grumpy about it. And while I was there, God really did something inside of me and something kind of came back with me from our church and we began to really see more of the Holy Spirit's power in our church. And so um, in March of last year, two Sundays before we shut down, by the way, for those keeping track, uh, Pastor Guillermo, who is, the, who is the district superintendent of the Havana Central District of the Methodist Church in Cuba, uh, and his wife, Audria, Pastora Audria, uh, came to our house and stayed with us and preached at our church. And uh, if you, again, if you've been hanging around, we, we put together a big chunk of change to, uh, for them, and so we're going to present that to them on Wednesday night. Um, if you feel led to give, you can do that, but I don't, we're not going to like pass buckets or anything like that because a lot of us have kind of given what the Lord felt like he did, and so, um, but we're excited to see them. When it comes to Audrey and Guillermo, it's like either happening tomorrow or not happening. There is no like ramp up or like lead or like, so if you were surprised by that text on Thursday, I was also surprised to find that they'd be coming to my house next week, so in the best way. So that'll be Wednesday night. I hope you'll come. Um, we'll ask Guillermo and Adria just a little bit about what it's been like. I mean, if, if you have chafed against the restrictions here in the States over the last year, let's, let's take you to a failed communist dictatorship, and we'll, we'll experience lockdown that way. It's been really rough, so, um, but excited to see and hear how God moves. Um, we're in Isaiah 58 today, um, and I just want to um, start with a story. I, I think the story is... Um, so two weeks ago, I, I went on a silent retreat. Think about that for a minute. Kyle and silence. <laughs> and uh, from about a, a Tuesday afternoon until midday on Wednesday, it was just me and the Lord. And I went in there with some pretty specific topics of conversation that I had uh, wanted to hang out with him and talk to him a little bit about. And so one of those was kind of how do I lead in this kind of sustained outward movement that we want to do over the next two or three years. And so one of the things I've been kind of zeroed in on and pretty sure about for about six or eight months was that after Easter, we were going to begin a series called um, Telling Others, uh, a series about sharing your faith. So I was kind of mapping that series out. This is what I want to talk about, this, this, and this, this, tool that. And as clear as day, I felt like I, so I'm zeroed in on that. And then over here, I hear the Lord say to me, um, Kyle, I'm not sure your people know the gospel well enough to, to be able to communicate it to other people. Is my mic doing that thing? Is my mic cutting in and out or is it just, my, is it just me? It is a little bit? Okay, we're going to keep trying. If only because I get annoyed. So the Lord says to me, yeah, I don't know if your people know the gospel well enough. And by the way, that's not a smack at you. That's at me. That's a me thing. The Lord was like, have you taught the gospel explicitly enough that when you then go ask people to share it, they know in their, they know in their heads and hearts what that is. So we're going to do a series after Easter uh, on what is the gospel. Uh, what is the gospel? What is my gospel? What is the gospel for us? What is the gospel for the world? And, um, and by my gospel, I mean, what is my experience of the gospel? What's my story? And uh, so I'm getting excited about that. But, but the reason I bring that up is because in my walk with Jesus, this is actually something that happens fairly often. 
that I will be kind of zeroed in on the things that I am doing to connect with God. So I'm praying, I'm reading scripture, I'm coming to church, I'm listening to worship on my own, I'm journaling, I'm fasting. These are the things that I'm doing to kind of connect with the Lord. And sometimes it lulls me into this place that I forget that the Lord might want to connect with me and do things in my life outside of just the things I'm explicitly doing to connect with him, right? That there might be circumstances throughout my day, that there might be a blind spot that I am unaware of that the Lord wants to speak into. I think we, as we follow Jesus, we want to grow in our capacity to experience the nudge of the Holy Spirit that yes, the things that we're working with and engaging with intentionally with him, he's communicating to us with, but there could be these other things in my life that maybe God is using to bring about change in my life. And sometimes the reality is not because of sin, uh, not even because of stubbornness, but just because of my focus on these things, I have a blind spot to the things that God wants to do in my life. And, and, and what we come to is in a passage in Isaiah 58 today, a similar experience where God's people are laser focused in. They are seeking after God. They are praying they are fasting, but on the other side of their blind spot is this whole other thing that God wants to engage with them in, and it has to do with uh, their reproach to the poor. So let's jump into Isaiah uh, 58, and uh, as we do, I just want to stop, say Isaiah, if you open your Bible and are in Psalms, you'll want to kind of go to the right until you hit Isaiah. Isaiah is what's called a prophet, there's uh, a number of prophetic books in the Old Testament, and you and I tend to think of prophets as fortune tellers, right? You think of prophets like you think of like, you know, your horoscope. Jupiter is in the third house, therefore be nice to yourself. Um, by the way, that is not the way of Jesus, okay? I just want to encourage you. Um, and so, uh, but prophets are not primarily fortune tellers. They do, they do sometimes foretell. They do sometimes give a glimpse into the future, but the primary purpose of the prophet is to help God's people see God's perspective on the cultural moment of their day. What are the circumstances going on in their cultural moment and what is God's perspective on that? That's what prophets are doing. Prophets aren't saying, hey, look out in the future uh, because the locusts in the book of Revelation are actually helicopters. That's a whole other topic. Um, the prophet's job is to say, hey, you know how you're kind of going about in your ordinary life? Actually, this is God's perspective. This is what you're missing. And that's exactly what happens here in Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud, Isaiah says. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Now, Verse 58, in my Bible and yours, there's quotes at the beginning, right? That's because Isaiah is writing down what the Lord is saying to him to announce to the people. So he's writing what the Lord is saying. And the Lord is saying, hey, I would like to declare to my people transgression and their sins. I want to inform them of something that's been in their blind spot. And so he says in verse 2, They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness, that's God meets valley girl, as if. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments and delight to draw near to me. 
They say, this is why it's another quote, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Listen, he's saying, my people are praying. They're seeking righteousness. They delight to know me. They're going to the temple. They're making their sacrifices. They're memorizing the Torah. And yet at the very same time, from, their pers- from the Lord's perspective, their spirituality is lacking. You're asking of me judgments, but you're ignoring my judgments. You're saying, why have we fasted? You see it, what not? And, and what the Lord is saying is that you can be doing all the right things externally to please God and still have a heart that's far from him. You can be doing all the right things externally to the human eye to please the Lord and still have a heart that's far from God. That's why Isaiah says elsewhere, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their spirituality is hollow. God says they do these things as if they were a nation that did righteousness. He's pointing out an inherent hypocrisy. And it turns out that despite all their outward works of righteousness, Israel is missing something. And so he says in the second half of verse 3, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight. They're hangry, I think. And to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day that is acceptable to the Lord? I mean, God's people are fasting, but they're doing it all wrong. They make a show of their fasting. They're taking Instagram selfies of the ashes underneath them and their burlap and how tired they are and how, and how humble they are. This is the exact kind of fasting, by the way, that Jesus tells us not to do in Matthew 6, this performative fasting. So they're fasting, but they're turning this day of fasting into a day of pleasure. They're fasting, but they aren't turning their attention toward God. They're fasting but they're just binging on Netflix all day. Maybe they're fasting, but they're watching Food Network all day. It's like fasting porn, you know? (laughs) And worse, while they fast, they're oppressing their workers. And here's what comes up in my mind is Hugh Hefner, the Playboy dude. And he's on a yacht, and all of the employees on the yacht are making like 10 cents an hour, He's hitting them, he's beating them, he's surrounded by naked women who are, who are drinking and laying all over him, and, 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 and he looks into the camera, as it were, and he says, well, I am fasting. It reminds me of a plantation owner in the American South in the slavery era whose workers are dehumanized who are raped, whose human dignity is ignored, is ignored. And the plantation owner looks at the camera and says, well, I am fasting. What comes to mind is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Righteous person after righteous person walks by in their righteousness, ignoring this bloody, bruised, beaten man. Righteousness without blessing others isn't really righteousness at all. 
We're fasting as a church. We're, we're turning our attention to God. We're seeking him. We're longing for more of him. We're also living in a community marked by hunger. We're also living in a community marked by addiction. We're living in a community marked by a profound hopelessness from the crushing yoke of generational poverty. We are aware of these realities, but if we ignore them, all the while saying, well, I am fasting, we miss the point. When we ignore the real human needs of people, of people when, when we are created, when we ignore the, the needs of people created in the image of God, and if we fast while ignoring it, we are turned out, it turns out we're just engaged in a religious pat on the back. God's people then and now have forgotten the community-oriented nature of our faith. We have forgotten that our vertical relationship with God is expressed by a horizontal love for other people. We have forgotten that being in relationship with God means taking responsibility to bless the world. My relationship with God is verified by and expressed by love for others and my care for the poor. And so here's Israel, fasting, righteous, but with a giant blind spot. And the blind spot is this in verses 6 and 7. Is not this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. Now a yoke, by the way, it's not the yellow part of an egg. It's a thing that goes across the shoulders of a beast of burden to make them work. And so the Bible uses that as an image of, of oppression and the heavy, crushing burden of poverty. To undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, is it not, is not the fast I choose to share your bread with the hungry? Is it not to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And this is interesting, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. In other words, when uh, this week we were up in Cleveland, Steph and I and, uh, went to a restaurant and I'm helping Jack potty train. We're so I've got his potty in the back of the car and he's got his little pants down and I'm helping him out. And as I'm helping him, I see somebody emerge into my periphery and it's, it's like a homeless guy. And what am I doing? In my head, I'm thinking, just don't make eye contact, Kyle. I'm also thinking, my son is half naked. Could you please back off? But I'm also thinking, just don't make eye contact. I'm hiding myself, Isaiah says, from my own flesh. The language of Isaiah 58 is echoed in Isaiah 61. Jesus takes up Isaiah 61 and he begins his public ministry saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the middle class. No, good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. God's people in Isaiah 58 have missed God's heart for justice. They've missed his character. Psalm 146 says that justice is essential to God's nature. It says he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He opens the eyes of the blind. He watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Can I remind you today that justice isn't an issue. It's a part of God's character. It's part of God's character. It's essential to who he is. And so here in Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, God is saying that while his people fast and draw near to him, they have a huge blind spot, a blind spot for an essential part of his character, an essential part of being his covenant family. Now hear me so clearly. 
God is not telling his people to abandon personal piety for social justice. Is this not the fast I choose? That you lose the bond of wickedness? Well, forget fasting. Let's just go social justice warrior. God is not saying that personal disciplines and personal holiness are less important than the work of caring for the poor and fatherless. In fact, what he's saying is that our personal holiness, our personal piety is necessarily expressed by and authenticated by caring for the least and the last. James says, so faith by, its, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you or I read Isaiah 58, if someone reads Isaiah 58 and hears Isaiah saying, to abandon personal piety in favor of social action, it's simply because we're reading the Bible as our culture has conditioned us to read it since the early 1900s. How many of you see the next illustration being about the Scopes monkey trial? Anyone? Anyone? Scopes monkey trial? Was that okay? You don't get pie. None of you get pie. Um, just kidding. Uh, Scopes monkey trial happened in 1925. It's largely symbolic. Um, in 1925, a Tennessee high school teacher, John Scopes, was accused of violating Tennessee's Butler Act, which made it unlawful to teach human evolution in any state-run school. So up until 1925, the law of the state of Tennessee was creationism only. And so John Scopes, now when you double-click on this, you can Google it. This was all kind of a setup. This was all arranged. Uh, I think William Jennings Bryan was involved. It was trying to kind of make a show of this whole thing. It was, but, but in the minds of church historians, what happened after the Scopes Monkey Trial is what we call the modernist fundamentalist divide. The modernist fundamentalist divide, where um, the, the modernists kind of started to downplay the supernatural aspects of the Bible and over, upplay this idea that we, of a social gospel, that we need to do good works, that that's what it means to be the people of Jesus, not defending the virgin birth, not defending all of these things. And then over here, you had the fundamentalists. And, and, and they were kind of arguing, no, 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 we need to defend the fundamentals of our faith. We need to defend personal holiness and the authority of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture and the virgin birth and call for personal holiness. And what happened was this massive divide that now exists even in our culture with mainline churches on one side, for the most part, and evangelical churches on the one side. Ronald Sider, Christians in an Age of Hunger, Billy Graham. And these things have been divided for as long as anybody in this room has been a Christian. And so we hear Isaiah 58, 6, and 7, and we think Isaiah is saying, well, forget personal holiness, forget personal piety, let's go do social action. This would have been unthinkable to any Bible-believing, Bible-reading Christian prior to 1900. Take, for example, D.L. Moody. There are two graduates of the Moody Bible Institute in our church. There's a third almost graduate of Moody Bible Institute. Holden, who's watching online, is going to Moody Bible Institute. Sing it with me. God bless the school that D.L. Moody founded. Firm may she stand, though by foes of truth surrounded. It's our school song. Um, D.L. Moody started the Chicago Bible Institute after his death. It was named the Moody Bible Institute. D.L. Moody devoted his life to two things. He devoted his life to preaching the gospel to tens of thousands. Before there was an era, before amplification and sound systems, D.L. Moody preached to like tens of thousands of people. 
in Chicago, across the U.S. He played a big part in the Welsh revival in Mexico, traveled the world, preached to tens of thousands. He also fed tens of thousands of children in Chicago. He started Sunday schools, and you know what you did in Sunday schools? The Bible was present, but you know what the Bible was present for? To teach you how to read and how to write. Because Chicago in the 1800s was a horror for children who worked six, hour, six days a week, 12, 14-hour days in the most unthinkable circumstances. D.L. Moody preaching to tens of thousands, sharing the gospel with these kids, but also realized if they don't know how to read and write, they're going to spend their lives in a pig slaughterhouse. Did you know in the 1800s, uh, uh, before the Chicago fire, Chicago, you basically only ever heard pigs screaming, and it constantly smelt like death because that's where the main slaughterhouses for most of the Midwest region were. D.L. Moody and others of his era did not see a choice between social action and personal holiness. He did not see a choice between social renewal and personal renewal. In fact, listen to these two quotes. There is plenty of opportunity in this fallen world to perform works of mercy and religion. He also said, reading the Bible and remembering the poor, a combination of faith and works will always bring joy. He said, cling to the whole Bible. A half a sword does and very little good. What God is calling his people to do in Isaiah 58 is cling to the whole Bible. In Isaiah 58, God isn't telling his people to abandon personal piety and favor of social action. Instead, Isaiah is calling God's people to embody the poor in through their fasting. He's calling them to step into solidarity with the poor to share their burdens. We're teaching fasting during this season of Lent. Lent is a season marked by three practices, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Not thanksgiving, almsgiving, giving to the poor. There's an early church document called The Shepherd of Hermas. It's an early Christian writing about the spiritual life. In fact, there was a lot of debate in the early centuries of Christianity whether it should have been included in the Bible. Fun fact. It wasn't written by an apostle, so therefore it got the... But it says this. It says that in fasting, we abstain from sin and convert the fast into charity. After refraining from bread and water, Christians are to, quote, estimate the cost of the food you would have eaten and give the amount to a widow or orphan or someone else in need. St. Augustine says, fasting chastens yourself. Your distress will profit you if you afford comfort to others. How many poor can be filled by the breakfast we have this day given up? How many poor can be filled by the breakfast we have this day given up? On Friday, February 17th, 1744, John Wesley and his friends and the movement he led observed a solemn day of fasting. And in his journal, he says, In the afternoon, many being met together, I exhorted them to deal their bread to the hungry, to clothe the naked and not hide themselves from their own flesh. In other words, he preached a sermon on Isaiah 58. And God opened their hearts so they contributed near 50 pounds. That is an unbelievable amount of money in 1744. 
which I began laying out the very next hour in linen, woolen, and shoes for them who I knew to be diligent and yet in want. All these people fasted together and said, here's the money we would have spent on fasting. Let's put it into a pot and let's buy some clothes and clothe the people. And so for Christians throughout the ages, fasting has been more than just an act of personal piety. It's been an act of justice and concern for the poor. It's a way that we embody God's disposition to the poor. Here's God who loves the hungry. I will step into that hunger to find in me God's love for these people. It's a way that we express solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world and here at home who live in unspeakable hunger. Uh, In Scott McKnight's book on fasting, he tells this story. In 1994, Representative Tony Hall a devout Christian and Ohio Democrat, fasted for 22 days. Then he summoned Christians to fast three days during Holy Week, quote, to raise the consciousness of the nation. I want people to begin to realize that there are 25 million Americans that are hungry, who go to food banks and soup kitchens, and half of them are under the age of 17. It was in 1994. Fasting gives us the opportunity to embody God's disposition to the poor, It aligns our hearts with the people that Jesus spent most of his time with. In our huddles, which is kind of a vehicle for leadership development that we use, we uh, every once in a while pause to work our way through a series of questions. And one of the questions on that sheet that we use in our huddles, that I, a, a, a question that I have been ignoring and pretending wasn't on the piece of paper for about as long as I've been huddled, is how is my relationship with the, how is my relationship with the poor? Jesus spent most of his time with the poor. Fasting calls us to step into solidarity with our brothers and sisters who live in hunger every day. So we only have a a few minutes left. So let me look at what happens in Isaiah. According to Isaiah, what happens when we fast to confront injustice? Look at verse 8. When our fast is lifting the yoke, when our fast is giving our bread, when our fast is clothing the naked. Then, in verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Does it not feel like being part of the people of Jesus means living in a scorched place? Does it not feel like the favor and the centrality of the place that we held in our culture is gone. Then he will satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. In fact, he will turn this scorched place into a watered garden. It's the Garden of Eden. This is Genesis 1 and 2. A place of plenty. Like a spring of water whose water 
not fail, a few months ago, somebody kind of had a word from the Lord in prayer time about waterfalls, and then Steph recently had one about fountains springing up across our community as we move outward. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. There's a lot here. Let me give you three things to notice. When we confront injustice through fasting, God says we will experience miraculous healing. Your healing shall spring up from the ground. And as a church that is pretty invested now in a naturally supernatural way of living and wanting to see more, God says when we confront injustice through fasting, we will experience more miraculous healing. One, two, confronting injustice through fasting means a deeper experience of the tangible presence of God. Y'all, I don't want to just come to church and sing at a wall. I want a deeper experience of the tangible presence of God. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. Third, confronting injustice through fasting stokes the fires of revival. You will be called the repair of the breach. If we want to see the church renewed and restored and revived, Isaiah says, confront injustice through fasting. So let me end here. I want to end with two things, two thoughts, and then Steph will lead us in response time. Scripture, first thing, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that Scripture tells us injustice exists. The first thing we have to do is recognize that Scripture tells us that injustice exists. Not as a category in the social sciences, not as a political tool wielded by the right or the left to shape the national dialogue. Injustice exists as a real and ongoing effect of a creation subjected to curse. It is an ongoing reality because the prince of the power of the air and the rulers and the princes of author and authorities want it that way. And right now, there's a ton of talk of justice. About social justice or biblical justice. And, and what's important is that we, the people of Jesus, submit not to the talking head that we prefer, not to the justice spun by the evangelical left or the evangelical right, not the justice spun uh, by CNN or by Fox News, but that we submit to the authority of Scripture, which tells us that regardless of our political leanings, that injustice does exist and will continue to exist until Jesus comes back. And in the meantime, we are called to be people who bring heaven to earth in a way that causes justice to roll down like the rivers. So whatever you think about injustice, it's real, it's systemic, it's pervasive for people of color. It's real, it's systemic, it's pervasive against the unborn. If you think it's overblown, if you think to talk about justice in church begins to cause us to move to the left, I wanna invite you to consider fasting. 
That's just the wind, be not afraid. I want to invite you to consider fasting before you post something else on social media, before you read another blog, before you read another book, before you listen to another talk, I wonder what would happen if you fasted. If you created room in your body and therefore room in your soul for God to say, this is what I see. This is a timeless view of the moment. And what if as we fasted, it would solve in us this desire to come from the outside into a community and save them? What if it would rid us of a Messiah syndrome that we all too quickly adopt when it is our opportunity to care for the poor? And what if our hunger and thirst to care for the poor and to care for the unborn and to care for people of color and to care for refugees and the fatherless and the widow, what if that came not from the outside but from within as we fasted? What if it came from within and poured out of us? And what if, when you fast this week, you calculate the amount of money you would have spent on the meals that you have missed and you give it to the poor? What if we step into the ranks of our brothers and sisters throughout time and across the globe who, when they fasted, gave alms? Is this not the fast I choose? Is this, is this not the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? and to bring the homeless poor into your house. And when you see the naked, to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Amen. At Regen, we practice response time, and there's a couple of reasons uh, why we do that. One is we want to be a people who hear God's voice individually. And second, we want to be transformed by that hearing, by how we live that out. Um, And I think why that's so powerful and so important is um, we want you to do what you sense God is calling you to do. What is he inviting you to? What is he challenging you to? As I was sitting and listening, I was thinking, when I lived in Chicago, these sermons felt so real, because every time I would step out my door, someone would ask me for money. And so I had to wrestle with that on a daily, sometimes moment-by-moment basis, but in my life here, I don't, I don't experience that. I don't see that as much. I don't face that as much. And so I think that the power in this moment is what is it that the Father is pointing out to you. And, and when we talk about hearing God's voice, what that might look like today is a nudge, um, some, maybe someone or something coming to mind in particular that the Father is highlighting for you. Um, maybe something that Kyle said struck a nerve and made you feel a little uncomfortable. Um, Maybe your heart is pounding as you think about taking that step. So what we're going to do in this time is pay attention to that, is pay attention to those ways that the Spirit is working in your life, that the Father is prompting you. And the way that we do that is by acknowledging it and then by acting on it.
And so we'll spend this time listening, trying to hear the Father, have a sense of where he's leading. And then my encouragement to you is to tell one other person what you sensed he told you today so that you have some accountability to do it this week. Okay, so we're going to take a few minutes, um, and then I'll pray. I'll, I'll close that time in prayer. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. <laughs> May you hunger and thirst for justice this week. Um, I just need a couple people's help to get the pies out of the fridge. Are they already done? Jenna looked. Jenna, okay. Okay, Jenna's offering. Help Jenna. And, uh, and, uh, if you need to be prayed for in any way, our oversight team will be available in the Otterbine room to pray. We love doing that. So, yeah, we love you. We'll see you next time. Grace and peace.